Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for July 26th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, today I think that we're going to have a conversation. We're going to talk about some of the hard-hitting topics that are out in our world. We're going to try to pull a variety of viewpoints, irrespective of where they come from, and we're going to do our best to make sure that our conversation is held in good faith. Hopefully, this will assist us and our audience in staying adequately informed. Yeah, you know, we realize we don't know everything. Um, our viewpoint doesn't come from nowhere. We, we have views on things, but we try to take account for that. And, you know, we don't, our views aren't the only ones that matter. You know, other people can look at the information and can have a good reason why they don't believe it or, you know, have come to a different opinion. You know, we're not on the ivory tower. We're not, we're not the ones with the opinions. We have a opinions and, you know, it's okay. But Evan, what, what, what are we uh, going to talk about today? So today we're going to start by looking at the Olympics, a very fun topic, but also how it is interacting with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So yeah. not quite as fun. Not quite. No, it's not fun. COVID is not fun. And COVID is kind of the theme of today's podcast. It's been a long time since we've done one, but it's it's felt pertinent. So what's going on at the Olympics, Evan? Well, this was brought to my attention by my wife, who's a big gymnastics fan. And apparently when the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, women's team, arrived in Tokyo, uh, one of their alternates, Kara Eaker, tested positive for the coronavirus. And so she, even though she has been vaccinated, she still has the virus and she is um, isolating. And her teammate, another alternate, Leanne Wong, is quarantining even though she hasn't tested positive but she's been identified as a close contact of Kara Eaker and so they will be away from the team which doesn't affect the team that much because they weren't scheduled to compete anyway but it still kind of throws everything into jeopardy in fact as the Olympic Games have already been underway for a few days now we're seeing more and more people associated with the games who are allegedly supposed to be in an Olympic bubble testing positive for COVID-19. To date, there have been 127 cases identified in either athletes or vendors or other officials associated with the Tokyo Olympics. And people are extremely nervous about this becoming a super spreader type event or a super variant event because people from all over the world are now intermingling and could potentially spread variants to parts of the world where people are not prepared for them. So, um, you know, nobody's like, (laughs) it's not Armageddon yet at the Olympic village, but there is some reason to be concerned. Yeah. So what is going on in the Olympic village? So over the past year, We've had, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, we learned how to deal with COVID in different ways um, to be more effective at mitigating it, especially at events that we feel are sacrosanct or just need to keep happening. So um, institutions like the NBA um, 
kind of to the greatest extent and like to a lesser extent, like the MLB and, um, you know, the NFL have generally figured out how to deal with COVID for groups of athletes and how to handle all that. Whereas the Tokyo Olympics have been handling it in a, um, in a manner that shows a lesser seriousness about it. Um, because it's like the, like Evan said, the, the Olympic village is supposed to be a bubble, but like all the athletes are able to go in and out of it to their events. They're able to contact with other people. Um, and they still like share rooms with people. Which, you know, um, the NBA realized that, you know, you have to give each person their own room so that they can stay contained and then also don't possibly contaminate other people. And Mm -hmm. there have just also been other measures in the Tokyo Olympics that have been like kind of hygiene theater. So like they do the whole like testing someone's uh, forehead temperature to see if they have a fever, which has been shown to be generally non-effective. You know, they have a tracing app, but then also athletes, you know, don't carry their phones when they're competing, which is (laughs) one of the main places where they have face to face interactions with people. The main place. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So another thing that I'll add to that is that while the Olympic Village itself is a sort of half hearted bubble athletes aren't even required to stay in the Olympic village at all. Like if you do choose to stay in the Olympic village, you have to adhere to the policies and protocols. But most of the U S athletes are just staying in hotels, which is completely fine by the IOC. They're just not being penned in at all. Well, and then also the fact that, um, you know, it's just the athletes who are in the Olympic village. That is a porous bubble, but you know, more so than the outside public, but then also all of their trainers and all the support staff are just staying at hotels as well. Yes. So it, it just really shows a kind of half-hearted attempt to mitigate this. And I mean, it would be expensive to do all this. And, you know, I, if (laughs) thinking about it, if there is one country I would choose to, host the pandemic Olympics, I would probably choose Japan, (laughs) but it has been, you know, and then also they didn't mandate vaccines for all the athletes and support staff. Um, Partially this is because not everyone has access to it, but the IOC, the, you know, international Olympic committee, they, you know, made a deal with Pfizer and Moderna to make sure that vaccines were available to all athletes who were going to be potentially in the Olympics. But, you know, not everybody has been vaccinated. And I mean, even U.S. people who are, um, you know, have had the greatest availability of vaccines, 100 athletes um, from the U.S. still weren't vaccinated, probably. Yep, 100 um, hundred out of 600. So that's nearly 20% of the athletes yeah. coming from the U.S. And in some respect, I mean, 80%, you know, if we are looking at our population right now, that'd be a good amount to be vaccinated. That is a good, but, yeah. <laughs> but like, 
and such a selective group going out to it. It's just like, why are these hundred people not being vaccinated? And why didn't they mandate that they be? I mean, this this Olympics is already filled with asterisks. Mm-hmm. Like this whole Olympics is an asterisk um, because of all the extra precautions and people not being able to compete and compete and getting the virus. But like it, it just yeah, kind of makes the wonder. Like, go ahead. Yeah, athletes like Coco Goff, the star tennis player, Taylor Crab, of a very strong U.S. beach volleyball competitor, uh, pulling out of the games, you know, because they have tested positive. So, yeah, it, like you were saying, there's already a lot of competition that's missing. And so why not just attempt the maximum safety? Yeah. You know, and... You know, sometimes you get to wondering, like, you know, if something's a big risk like this, why do it at all? But I mean, as what we've learned throughout this pandemic is that things matter to people and something like the Olympics, you know, matters to people and they want it to still happen Um, because because it brings an amount of joy to our lives. I mean, I I say that as like a royal hour because. I, you know, I haven't watched (laughs) the Olympics and, you know, it's not something that really gets me going, but it gets people going. And I, you know, still think that they should go on. But like, it's just interesting how in the pandemic there, there's still and, you know, how much we've learned that it is still so open to chance that athletes and people involved with it can get COVID and spread it. Yeah, yeah. And I want to kind of shift the focus towards how the the Japanese people are responding to it, because I think that this is really telling. There are huge protests going on in Japan right now calling for the immediate shutdown of the games. Over 50% of the Japanese people in, in opinion surveys have indicated that they do not support holding these Olympic games within their country. And this is set against the backdrop of Japan having a huge explosion in cases. They are up to January, like pre vaccine type levels of positivity rates in Japan. And so not only is this sort of throwing the international community into a bit of a precarious position, the people within the host country are not super happy by and large. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a tough because in the United States, for the most part, we, uh, the, the virus is not at its worst right now. It is not the worst it's ever been. But there's actually a fair number of countries out there where they are now experiencing it at its kind of worst levels. Um, you know, I, I just about every day I go and look at COVID stats on Google because they're readily available. And if you break it out to the whole world and what is reported and, you know, the number of deaths and the number of cases, I mean, it's it's right now at a world scale it's actually one of the tougher times that we've been through with covid um it's hitting a lot of countries big right now and japan is one of them 
And I mean, it's not still not quite at the levels that like has been seen in the United States, but a bad outbreak is still a bad outbreak. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess a lot of Japanese people see it as an unnecessary risk to do the Olympics. Um, especially also like, I don't know how much it plays into it about how uh, xenophobic Japan is kind of in general, but like it's, you know, they, if they don't want them, you know, the Olympics to happen. I mean, I think this is kind of a fair enough, uh, you know, reason to be upset at the Olympics. So Japan being xenophobic is is something I haven't heard before. Can you explain that to me? They're very closed off to foreigners, um, whether it be in their, uh, you know, the legal immigration sphere. Like it's very hard to immigrate to Japan, but then also um, they are not always the kindest to foreigners um, when they come. Uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, this could be any country, maybe I'm using anecdotes, but I've heard of, you know, people going there and they, you know, they won't get served at a restaurant if they don't fully speak Japanese and just kind of, you know, shown, you know, not being shown the same respect because they're outsiders in some place that is so insular. Um, yeah, there aren't a ton of people who are able to move to Japan. And if you do, you basically, you, you have to be, you know, speaking fully Japanese, know all their customs, you know, that you have to really be able to blend in to do it. Um, so that's part of China or Japan as well. I just did a little faux pas there. Um, oh, almost did. Almost did. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's um, part of Japan as well. So, But it makes sense in a time of disease. And, you know, the, again, this is the thing where it is a spreader or, you know, there is a lot of risk, but they could have mitigated against this more effectively. If, if it was deemed to be necessary to still have the Olympics... Um, because you could choose, like, I think what COVID has proven is that to really fight against it, there is a pretty high bar that you have to clear in order to truly protect against it. And if you want to do something and not have COVID, you have to clear that bar, but making the choices in the middle where you're not clearing that bar can be just detrimental. Like Mm -hmm. if you're not doing the full letter of what needs to be done for these events, it's almost like why even try and mitigate it at all? At least it seems like that. Well, it'll just feel so hollow, right? Because at the end of the day, the international Olympic committee and all of the constituent national committees have decided that they are okay with the risk of spreading COVID. Clearly they are because COVID is spreading and they are, you know, still continuing with the games. And I'm not even here to say that that is an indefensible position, right? You know, at least especially 
American athletes, and it sounds like through the deal that the IOC cut with the manufacturers, most of the international athletes have the option to get vaccinated, and they may or may not choose to or not, um, if that circular sentence made sense. Yeah, um, <laughs> I did. To and, me, uh, Okay, cool. And, um, and so you, you could argue, and I think it's a successful argument, that some level of COVID risk is tolerable. I mean, there's some level of COVID risk that's tolerable in our own lives. I'm vaccinated, but it's, you know, you still have the option, option, like it's a choice. You still have the potential to contract COVID, even if you're vaccinated. (laughs) Um, Thankfully, you know, you're not going to, you're probably not going to actually get severely sick and die because your immune system has the, the tools to fight it off. But, you know, I still am out interacting with people. I've done a lot of traveling this summer. I'm going to the gym and going to restaurants and stuff unmasked. It, it's it's the level of risk that you accept. But where it starts to break down is when they want to put on this front and say that they are really committed to stopping COVID and... They're going to make all these rules that don't really do a lot security hygiene theater, like Joe was saying, and you're going to have the cardboard beds, but really not actually do much to clear that bar that Joe was talking about. Yeah, it's 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 the gap between what is said and what's done that is more at issue than actually what is done. Yeah. It's almost like this COVID theater stuff is almost a moral hazard. You know, if I kind of think about it for a little bit, it's like we put up the front that there are, you know, we're having protocols to protect people from getting COVID, which can give license to people to either a not get vaccinated or B, not take the protocols as seriously. And it leads to a scenario where more people get COVID. Yeah. Um, Because if they believe that the system as laid out is airtight and can prevent it, and no one's really telling them otherwise, you know, at least the proper authority isn't telling them otherwise, then that gives a little bit of license for riskier behavior. Like I have the vaccine as well. I go to restaurants. I go out in public. I haven't. The last time I wore a mask was when I went to a doctor's visit. But that's like the only time I've worn a mask in like the last three months. I had to go find my mask like it had been so long. And they didn't give you a new mask at the doctor's office. Well, I just prefer to wear mine. You know, well, my yeah, cloth but, one. So, well, yeah, but the thing is, um, when I took Lindsay to an appointment, when we got there, you have to wear your mask in there, but then they require you to take off whatever mask you wore and put on one of their, like, higher quality masks. So, oh, they didn't make me do that. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, uh, that was just a little... I, yeah. I was curious about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all good. But, like, so I've been... <laughs> I've been running around with a naked face for for a few months now. And, you know, that's the risk I'm taking, but I'm also vaccinated. So I know with a high degree of certainty that the worst ailments of COVID are, are out of reach for me. 
at least they're at a low enough percentage that I don't worry about them like other things that I have low percentage of thing happening to me. Like that I probably at this point have a higher chance of dying in a car crash than dying from COVID, um, you know, and stuff like that. But, but I can, I'm making that choice because I know with a certainty that I have that protection. Whereas people in the Olympics who are unvaccinated and, or, you know, are unvaccinated and following the kind of more lackadaisical protocol of the, the, you know, COVID protocols for this Olympics, they are not as well protected as everybody else and may be set up to have more exposure than they would otherwise accept, but feel that they are being contained in some way. I wonder how much of it is false sense of security versus just license to not care because i i live in indiana as you all know and our vaccination rate's pretty low we're still under 50 percent and as soon as the mask mandates got repealed everyone took off their masks they say like it's for if you're vaccinated you don't have to wear a mask but if that were true we would have, based on what I observe by people not wearing masks, we would have a 95% vaccination rate instead of a 46% vaccination rate. And so I wonder, is it that those people see that the virus is getting better and they say they make a rational decision to say, okay, I'm safe now, or were they the whole time just stewing like, I don't want to wear a mask for any reason, dirt to dirt, and now they just don't have to? Probably both. There's probably two different sets of people in the subset, but yeah, that's, that's another valid explanation. Um, yeah, you know, there are some people still in my life who are not vaccinated and you kind of wonder why, but it's like, Same, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, but it, it, it's also interesting. Like I live in Galesburg, Illinois. Wow. Big shocker coming at the news. Um, Where's that? Is that by Chicago? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and we're an isolated community of about 30,000 people. And, you know, there are some surrounding towns and stuff. And like, you know, I look at the COVID numbers basically every day and we're basically at pretty low to zero in Knox County, which is our county. You know, there hasn't been an uptick in the virus. So, you know, in some ways it makes sense for the local people to still be on the fine, you know, not really caring too much about masks and, and social distancing and all that stuff, because right now it hasn't come to affect us, but this is like the whole thing with the virus is that like the threat that it can come back at any one time is just, it's there, but how do you, how do you respond to that versus just seeing all the day-to-day measures and seeing that it's fine, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, the Olympics it's, you know, if they wanted to mitigate COVID more, they could have, but then also, I guess to put a kind of bow on it generally, um, the people who showed up for it knew the risks as well. You know, this is a, this is 
like out of everything in the world, I think being in the Olympics is as much anybody's choice as you're going to have in something. Um, it's, it's the ultimate positive choice um, <laughs> one can make. So they all chose to be there. And this is not to say that this you know means that the COVID protocols are okay, but like the, the risks were accepted and the people who, at least in the U.S. and the countries with high vaccine availability, those athletes definitely made the choice of whether to be vaccinated or not. Except for, you know, there are small cases of very young people in the Olympics who haven't been able to be vaccinated because it's only been approved for certain ages. But that's true. But that's such a small number of people that it, it you know, it almost doesn't warrant even mentioning. But but it still exists. Well, what does warrant what, what does warrant mentioning, of course, with all of this is that Squarespace. <laughs> it felt like <laughs> if you want to up into if you want a place it did <laughs> like now that I, I definitely hear what you heard for sure. Um <laughs> But no, what I will say is that uh, it's not not to rip this bow off or anything, but um, let's get back. Why in the we ta- <laughs> Why we talk about it with COVID is that it's always one thing for someone to accept a risk. Like if you go skydiving, you're accepting that risk. But with a disease, you know, you could take it back home with you from the Olympics and give it to someone who has a medical condition that prevents them from getting vaccinated. You could give it to a worker who has no choice but to go to work. So that's the one thing that is a little bit more complicated in here when we're talking about risk is that with viral infectious infectious diseases, we're never just confined to our own risk. It really is truly a community risk. Yeah. 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 And then also like, (laughs) like this, this breeds to like an almost American individualistic look at it. Like somehow that your life is only just yours, that nobody else has any sort of, I, I mean, not to say that other people have claim on your life, but Evan, if you, if you were, you know, you know, chose to be unvaccinated and got COVID and died, I'm pretty sure Lindsay and, you know, me would be quite upset. Yeah, and, no, and, yeah. Um, you know, at losing you. So, like, you, you know, a person is not just a person. You, you know, we're giving ourselves to all the people around us, and that affects them as well. So. Yeah, you know, there was something actually really really touching about that That, that's good (laughs) um yeah it's um it's something but of course you know a bunch of 20 year olds going to the olympics who are on top of the fucking world i I guess they may be a little cocky about things (laughs) uh yeah so i think that's a good place to leave the olympic discussion so joe in our COVID episode what's next yeah it's a completely different topic um no we're gonna have a lot of the same things to say but 
So, so the other big thing that's been going on in COVID is the rise of variants, um, specifically the Delta variant. Um, but I guess as a primer, what, what is a variant? Um, so every time a disease moves, is transmitted between two people, um, there is the chance that there will be a little bit of a mutation within the DNA. And what what is this mutation? Well, you know, if you have your DNA and it's, you know, if we're going back to high school, bi- you know, uh, biology, not biography, um, which <laughs> I wanted to say, um, then, you know, you know, there's this chain of these little tiny little acids that, you know, become a big long chain and that's DNA. Well, every time it's transmitted or, you know, reproduces, there become these little changes in the DNA. One of those little... This is is how viruses were evolved to survive, by making sure that they could have... um, highly changeable DNA so that they could adapt to new hosts and new environments. Right. And most of the time, these little mutations do nothing. You know, you change this little acid in the, in the DNA, you know, you change one thing over, it doesn't really change anything, but you know, DNA, we're still figuring it out. And sometimes one of those little changes can change how, um, a characteristic about a virus. So it can change like what part of the body it affects. Um, it can change how potent it is. It can change how much it reproduces, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So um, a little while back, um, late last year, there was identified a strain called the Alpha variant. Um, it was over in Britain. Um, when the country was having relatively low cases, um, the city of Kent was starting to have a rise in cases and I wonder why. Well, it turns out it was a new strain of the virus, the alpha variant, and it was about 60% more spreadable than uh, what the original variant was. And how does it become more spreadable? Well, it just ends up being that this um, new variant gets into the host body and is able to reproduce a lot more, um, something to the, I mean, it's 60% more spreadable, but it makes a whole lot more copies of itself inside the body, which means that anytime anyone breathes, sneeze, whatever, there's a whole lot more of the virus, which means that, you know, it's more likely to get into somebody and catch a hold. Um, so that was about 60% more, uh, spreadable than the original variant. Then comes along the Delta variant, which originated in India, and the Delta variant spread 60% more than the Alpha variant did, which, if you're doing your math at home, ends up being about 156% more spreadable than the original coronavirus strain, which is having some new effects and it's almost like like if you were playing the part of the virus this would be like that this is you stepping up the plate for changing conditions um because in a whole lot of the world 
or at least some parts of the world, the most vulnerable have been vaccinated and there's a good number of people. So it, the virus, if it wants to continue to inhabiting people, it needs to be able to spread more effectively to the people who are not vaccinated. And it seems to have done just that. I thought that learning about sort of how viruses mutate was really interesting. It's something I picked up from The Premonition by Michael Lewis. Basically, like Joe was saying, ev pretty much every time that the virus goes from one person to another, it changes a little bit. And so that's why sort of studying the viruses and mapping out what the actual components of the virus are from people who have tested positive can show you how the virus spread from person to person because you can say person A's strand of COVID is 99.9% similar to person B's. So therefore, likely person A gave it to person B where it then mutated slightly in person B. And so you can actually do pretty sophisticated contact tracing through that. Um, and so why do variants matter beyond their ability to replicate more quickly? Well, if the virus changes significantly from the strain around which the vaccine was developed, it may or may not be effective at being treated by the same vaccine. So thankfully right now, it seems like the data that we have suggests that the vaccines that we have are still effective at preventing severe COVID cases, even with the Delta variant. However, the longer that we continue to allow the virus to run unchecked, the longer that we have the option of more variants popping up that will significantly deviate from the original strain and will limit virus effectiveness. Right now, in the United States, the Delta variant is responsible for 83% of new COVID cases. So five out of every six people who are coming down with COVID are getting specifically that Delta variant from India. And it is having actual impacts in the public health and economic worlds. We have four times the amount of infections that we did a month ago. And of the new COVID cases, 99.7% are occurring in people who are unvaccinated. And I don't know about you, Joe, but that leads me to a couple of conclusions. My first conclusion is that the vaccines are working. You know, very small percentage of the new cases are among people who are vaccinated, despite anecdotal evidence like Kara Eaker from the earlier segment. Mm -hmm. And um, it also suggests to me that um, th things are getting kind of scary because the number of people who have been vaccinated is going up. It's leveling off, but it's still rising. So there's fewer people who are susceptible to getting the virus, and we're still seeing cases rise. The um, Biden administration is trying to brand it the pandemic of the unvaccinated, because that is who is really mostly being affected right now. Mm -hmm. But um, you can always tell when there's general uncertainty about a current event by how the stock market reacts and the stock market has been fluctuating a lot lately i know a couple days ago the dow jones took a pretty big hit um 
I, I know that there's a tendency to feel like we've reached some sort of level of safety, but as long as our vaccination rate lags, we're not really going to achieve that type of independence and security. Yeah. Well, can I, I, I want to go on a little tangent. Can I? I just did and up. I didn't even ask. So yeah. go for it. Well, this is extra tangy. This is off topic. Um, well, because you brought up the Dow Jones and I was recently thinking again about how the stock market isn't like always a great predictor for things going on because it's weird. So like the Dow Jones isn't like just one stock. It's a set of 30 stocks and like for it to go down, that means on a given day, um, you know, there has to be more, you know, uh, decreases than increases in stocks but like how do you you, you know make a decision you know like a trader news about covid you know on what stocks do they make the decisions on that they want to sell off on like like you know visa is in the dow jones like how does news about COVID affect, you know, the the price in Visa? How many people sell off on that because of that information? I mean, it's not going to be everyone because that would be a run on the market. But then, like, just kind of marginally, some people make decisions and sell off their stocks, which makes it go, you know, the price go down. So it's just kind of interesting to think that are looking to uh, the stock market as a measure of investors feeling us about things is really down to the marginal investors of these 30 stocks. <laughs> well, it's it's a fair point, and I'm glad that you uh, bring it out for full context on that. Um, Which, yeah, it's just yeah. interesting uh, to think about. Yeah. Like, I still think, you know, anecdotally, it makes sense, like, like if the Dow Jones went down 5,000 points because of something, I think that would be a pretty good indicator. But like goes <laughs> down like 700 points, which is like, I mean, Dow is what at like 35,000 now. So it's like if it goes down 700 points, which is less than a percent, like, I don't know. <laughs> I but just... they always trick you because they show you those graphs of the Dow Jones and they don't start at zero. They start at like 34,000. Well, and yeah. So they make the it look day. like a yeah. seven point. They make it look like a 700 point dip is huge. But if you took the whole context of it, yeah, it would, it would look right. less severe. Yeah. Well, they use the graph the traders use. The traders don't really care about absolute value. They care about the day's, you know, change in value. So, you know, and I have a couple stocks and, you know, whenever a new day of trading starts, zero is at where it traded at yesterday and it goes up and down above zero, you know, the quote zero based on, you know, how it does. Um, not, what stocks do you have, Joe? Uh, mm, it's a secret. Oh, OK. Um, I own a lot of Volkswagen. It hasn't been doing great, but I think I think they're going to do something. I'll make a little money. They're a good company. But, um, and some renewable energy stocks, which had a huge bubble before Biden was elected. And then after he was elected, um, the bubble <laughs> kind of popped. Um, you know, so anyway, um, 
what was I going to say? So after the stock market, just kind of being a weird indicator. Um, but yeah, this is, this is an interesting part of the pandemic. So it's has, you know, through the whole pandemic, it has always been the case that it is not really up to individuals to stop this. And there was talk early on, even last year about how, Part of being as safe as possible with the virus is making sure that as few people get infected, not only just so that they aren't exposed to the risk of the virus, but that so also new variants don't come out, that these mutations don't happen. Like the goal of reducing infections with the virus is both for the safety of that person and so that we don't get a new virus out of it, you know, because every time someone gets the, you know, the virus, you know, you're rolling the dice on whether, you know, a new variant comes out that's more effective or not. Um, like we said, most of the time it's benign, you know, nothing really changes, but then there is that little bit of a chance. And what we've seen is that, you know, when we have more infections out there, that these variants do rise, you know, they do happen. They, they come just out. Just law of averages. Yeah. 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 So it's, you know, and, and, you know, through the whole virus, we have been in a constant state of how, at what level do we take precautions to mitigate this? Like, we were basically in the United States pulled kicking and screaming into even just having, you know, wearing our masks out in public. <laughs> and, you know, we did some shutdowns for a little while, but they weren't even shutdowns anywhere close to what they did in other countries. You know, mm-hmm. it was more of a suggested shutdown than anything. Like, even here in Galesburg, there were a couple restaurants who never, like, shut down. Um and they were never really stopped from not shutting down. Mm-hmm. So it's like other people made choices, but it it's it's like you have to take in the you know from the public health perspective, it's taking on and figuring out the risk of the day to day, and then figuring out the risk for the long term as well. Hmm. Um, and it just seems like taking on the risk of the long term has been a, a tough go because we're so worried about the day to day. Um, and, and yeah, it's just, so what we have now, it's been interesting with the Delta variant. So more people have been getting the virus or, you know, it's spreading wilder. It's getting to unvaccinated people at a higher level. But especially from the data we've seen out of the UK, there has been, they've been calling it a decoupling between the cases and death rate. And this is a big reason why is that the most vulnerable to death from coronavirus, the elderly, have almost universally sought out vaccination, um, which protects them, if not fully from the coronavirus, um, if basically fully from being hospitalized and from death by the coronavirus. 
And since the Delta variant hasn't been more severe in terms of how the recipients experience it, that's been good. But then it's also just spreading more. So it's spreading through all the non-vaccinated people uh, much faster. But the current stock of unvaccinated people are in a better health condition than the you know entire population that was unvaccinated back in uh, the end of last year. Yeah, it's like um, that game Pandemic that you can play, right? Um, what? Where there's different there's different uh, stats that your little disease can have because you can have sort of the spreadability stat but then there's the lethality stat and that's different so you can have a a position where like everyone in america has the virus or you know bacteria whatever infection you're running but but people aren't dying and so that affects your score too um so i guess what we're finding here is that new variants are very infectious but they're they're hitting the people who are least likely to die which is certainly a good thing or less likely to die um what did i say least i guess that was a small correction that i didn't need to make (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry evan i'm sorry that's okay i just i I was seriously like did i did i just like have a have a big uh, brain fart did i say like something totally out of left yeah no um (laughs) (laughs) yeah evan you're completely out of line it's not the least it's less um but yeah, so the Delta, you know, I guess we kind of end this in a, well, I don't know if this is even an end, but like, what do we do? And to be honest, I am not an expert. Hey, you know what? <laughs> Go to our intro. We're not experts. <laughs> um, but it really does seem to be that if it really came roaring back, there would be some, you know, there would be a lot of um, pushback from reimposing any sort of pandemic measures because a good amount of people have, at least in the United States, basically decided we're done, which totally understandable. I feel like I'm done with it, too, you know, <laughs> um, that we're past it. But but here's the thing again, like mutations we don't know what's going to happen with them and the more people who get infected the greater risk that you know another bad mutation happens so like there is some universe where like um you know we go through the logic as follows like last year we all had to wear a mask because we didn't have a choice in being able to adequately protect ourselves from the virus. Now we do have through the vaccine, the ability to protect oneself from the virus. So if, you know, if we want to let the vaccinated, you know, if we can just let people do what they want because the unvaccinated people are accepting their own uh, response, you know, it's kind of their own deal if they get infected or not. Um, because mm-hmm. the vaccinated people are protected against it and the unvaccinated people are taking on risk to not be you know, vaccinated. But what happens is if we let you know, all these people who are unvaccinated get the virus, 
then that's a whole lot more opportunities for mutation. And it could be that another one of those mutations just makes a new virus that is un, you know, that is not um, deterred by the vaccine mm-hmm. and you know, could be more deadly, you know, something yeah, along and those it comes, lines. comes back to the idea of collective risk, because if you decide, I don't give a shit about getting this virus, do your worst. That's, you know, I guess that's your choice. But if the virus mutates inside you and you're the guy who hosts the big bad variant that can overwhelm vaccine defenses and kill a whole bunch of people, then all of a sudden it feels a lot less like an individual choice, right? Right. (laughs) Um, But people, it seems like, don't understand that concept of collective risk. And maybe we're... You know, maybe I'm saying things that have already been said before, even in this podcast, but, you know, we we kind of just have such a shallow conceptualization of freedom that we don't want to do anything that wasn't our initial idea, even if it comes from public health experts, and we justify it in this language of choice when... Really, we're, we're sacrificing a much greater choice down the road, not just for ourselves, but for our entire communities. I mean, I mean, that that is true. But then I also just want to, like, push back just a little bit that yeah, go for we it. are still seeing these types of issues in other countries as well. Um, you know, this type of I mean, maybe it's just like the white Anglo-Saxon world, but I mean, like the UK is also having issues with, um, vaccine uptake. Um, Israel I mean, while they have a higher, uh, level of vaccination, it is also not a hundred percent. And they're starting to run into the wall of, you know, what do you do with this? Um, you know, other countries within continental Europe are also having issues with this. So it's just a, I mean, I, we can say it's a failure of the United States and the people, but man, it also just seems like it, there's something, you know, just else out there. Maybe it's some form of global dif- disinformation or, or, you know, reluctance, but, but it's also not wholly unique to the United States. Well, maybe what I would counter with to save my own face is that perhaps it's not a failure of the United States, but it is a failure of Western hegemony, which is largely guided by U.S. preferences and tastes. Maybe. 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 I mean, we're, maybe. we're we're spitballing here. Yeah. Um, you know, then when we, Eric Clapton and then we get into the wet and then to the what is a Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere. Where's Turkey people, fit in it? People who speak English, I don't know. Like you said, yeah. white Anglo Saxon derivatives, <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. So, Canadians. Oh Canadian fuck, geese. The Canadian. The Canadian geese, they don't speak English. <laughs> oh, uh, oh. They want you to think that they don't, but they fucking do. They hear everything. No, they speak French. They're Quebec. Oh, oh, they're Quebecois. Another tangent. I am just amazed at how, like, 
Quebec continues to be Quebec. Like there are a lot of people in Quebec speak French and only French. Like they're yeah. surrounded by a world that speaks English and so much from the outside of their little Providence. Well, it's not little, but you know, on the scale of whole countries, you know, their little area that somehow they're able to maintain such a stranglehold on that. Hey, good uh, for them. Yeah. Hey, good for them. Um, just interesting. It's interesting. Um, they fight very hard to keep that. But but on a but back to the coronavirus. It's it's just I mean, it's always been tough. Um, but but also one thing that it just seems so unnecessarily tough is that the FDA still hasn't fully authorized the use of these vaccines. Yes, but they are moving towards it. They are moving they're, towards it. They're working on it. Ooh, they're trying. They're working on it, but this is just another level. Like, I am kind of an FDA skeptic in some ways. Like, mm-hmm. I believe in the mission of the FDA, which on a basic level is to say, hey, does this medicine do a thing? And it's not just flower dust, you know? And it's not going to hurt people yeah, to take it. Yeah, exactly. And I just, with these vaccines, we've had, you know, it hasn't shown to be any issues. And it's like, why haven't these been fully authorized? Is there any data that's coming in or could come in within the last little bit to show that they aren't? And, you know, I, you know, they say they're working on it. I just want to know what it is that they're working on it that's changing, would change things from today to like maybe the end of September or the end of August when they're thinking about getting out that full authorization. You yeah. Know? So for anyone who's a little bit confused right now, the vaccines are authorized for emergency use. Basically, the FDA said COVID's really bad. We haven't really done enough whatever FDA stuff we do to give them full authorization. But because there's a pressing emergency, we can give them this special authorization. And so what you're having is people are using the lack of a full FDA approval as a justification for not taking the vaccine, which is contributing to vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, what, what are we waiting for guys? Like, you know, they, they'll say, well, we, we don't want to hurt the credibility of the FDA. And it's like, I mean, I guess this gets into this whole health outcomes or health arena where institutions have to act. It, it, it's just no clear choices. Like, you know, it's it's not like something simple when I don't know, like someone attacks a military base and then uh, the military does a counterattack. you know that's like a, mm-hmm. a clear-cut decision to do whereas like you know the cdc you know in past times um you know they'll see stuff where it looks like a virus is starting to take hold a new variant you know this was like the swine flu in the 2010s and it's like you know if you want to be make sure that everybody's safe you can take these pretty extreme measures but if it turns out to um 
not be anything, then, you know, you just like you just wasted your time, you know, and you wasted yeah. your credibility with it. Whereas, and, and the CDC. Oh, go ahead. Finish. But then no, I no, I was going to go on to a different part. So, you, oh, OK, yeah, no. So this is this is relevant because. This is another thing that came up in the premonition by Michael Lewis, that the CDC is actually really gun shy about trying to make too strong of recommendations because in the late 70s, they saw a pandemic coming and really tried to push a vaccine for it. And they vaccinated a lot of people, a lot of elderly people, and the side effects of the vaccine actually killed a non-negligible number of the people who received the vaccine, especially elderly people. And then the pandemic that they predicted never came. And so that was a huge PR crisis for the CDC because what the people saw was the CDC pushed a vaccine, which killed several people and protected no one because the pandemic never arrived. And so that was at like the late 70s. It was a Carter administration guy. And then when Reagan came in, he shit canned the head of the CDC and reduced their power to push vaccines as forcefully in the future and just sort of neutered the organization overall to the yeah, point basically, where now. Yeah, they, they took the powers that the CDC would have had to act on its own and they took it brought it into the jurisdiction under the president. Yeah, and they made positions within the CDC presidential appointees instead of sort of career bureaucrats who rose through the ranks of the CDC based on their own expertise. So decisions become politically motivated because that's how you keep or receive promotions within the CDC instead of based on your actual scientific expertise. Um and so that that fear is still felt by public agencies to this day. Yeah. And it may be why that we have sort of these reluctant responses from people like the FDA. Yeah. Well, so the FDA has all for the last, I don't know, half century, it's been just kind of this weird enigma where like, you know, it it, it will be too cautious in letting people try new things in the face of you know like death so like you know they would refuse AIDS. yeah yeah the, this is a big one is that like dallas buyers club yeah they wouldn't <laughs> allow people to try out uh experimental AIDS drugs even though they're you know these people were gonna die anyway so they were like just like let me try it you know like, mm. I'm not going to sue that this is I'm going to die whether I have this. And, you know, this may just be the one little chance, you know, I'm going to die anyway. So if I die from the drug, fine, fuck it, you know, um, whereas and then this also happens again with experimental cancer drugs. Now, we can kind of put on our smart man hat and be like, well, the pharmaceutical companies have been putting out these cancer treatment drugs that are like more of a 1% improvement than like a 50% improvement. But like, you know, cancer patients, you know, who are in dire throes still want to try out that stuff and they don't let them. Um, mm -hmm. 
And but then also the FDA will go and do weird things like, again, like proposing these cancer or approving these cancer drugs that are um, only just like a little bit more effective. But I mean, they don't hurt anybody. And, um, you know, they're still effective in some ways, but, you know, they don't really add to the public benefit in a real serious way. And like right now they're on track to approve this um, Alzheimer's drug, which in the trials that, you know, the drug maker originally did found that it really wasn't effective. (laughs) But you know, they did a re- retcon on the data and found some weird subset where maybe it has a negligible effect, but, you know, it, it's it's getting on course for being approved and it's like uh, a, uh, a full schedule of it is like $56,000. And it's just, it's just the FDA is weird in how it goes about things and it feels like it's blase you know it feels like sometimes it's a little blase in the face of great danger and then also not serious enough in the face of uh drugs that are only marginally better well recently the fda i know has come under a lot of criticism for how it handles the approval of medical devices this was talked about in the documentary on Netflix, The Bleeding Edge. Um, And Joe, it's the same director as um, that movie that we watched about the closeted politicians. It's that same documentarian. Yeah, Yeah, Kirby Dick. I forgot Um, we watched that. I know, it was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) It was a long time ago, and it's like, is this just... uh, It's one of those things where it's like, is this just a stereotype, or was there actually something behind this? But anyway... (laughs) <laughs> I think he was wrong about Charlie Crist, right? I think that was a big whiff in retrospect. I, I don't um, remember. Anyway, um, so the bleeding edge, basically there's a process for medical devices where you can get FDA approval and the FDA never has to look at your medical device if you can prove that it is one step removed from something that the FDA already approved. But the problem is that you can have a device that the FDA approved and change one thing and get that approved. And then you can take the the new thing, change one thing, get that approved, and you can do that infinitely. And there's never a point where the FDA says, wait, this is no longer significantly similar to the initial thing that we approved, so we need to check it again. So yes, definitely there is um, this tension in the FDA between being really overly cautious in some areas and really lackadaisical in others. Yeah. Well, that now that now that we're on devices, I just I got to talk about the fucking EpiPen because this is like okay. this is like one of my favorite stories ever. Like, well, it I mean, not that I'm happy about it. It's just <laughs> an interesting thing. It's just that like I don't know. It's been a few years since I've checked in on it, so it may have changed since then. But for so long, and maybe even still to this day, EpiPen, like it, you know, it's it's the thing that you take a shot of that it, you know, if you're having an allergic reaction to something, it can basically put a halt to that and save someone's life from it. And 
EpiPen was a quite a large monopoly. They were really the only people in the space that had a product that people could buy. So they would charge a lot of money for these devices. Well, come to find out, they don't have the patent on the medicine. The medicine is, you know, over the counter stuff. I think uh, it's not norepinephrine. That's the, the it's epinephrine. Yeah, epinephrine. Okay, yeah, yeah. And um, that's that's just like a totally, I don't know, um, you it's know, just public domain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a generic. You know, if it was a if it was a work of fiction, it would be public domain. Um, but. It, it's just totally available and super cheap. So like the amount of epinephrine in an EpiPen is like three cents worth. But what they have is a monopoly on the delivery device, the the pen, the, the actual mm-hmm. thing that you stick in yourself. And other manufacturers were trying to get the pen because this is something that is just like it has come out and it's so important to people. But like... Just, you know, they people were having a hard time getting a different device to prove that wasn't like the the exact same as the EpiPen because the, you know, the makers of the EpiPen have the patent for it, which means that that specific design is theirs until the patent runs out. So if you want competition in the EpiPen, you know, business or the the rapid epinephrine delivery response business, then you need to come up with a different delivery device or a new mechanical device when it turns out it's just kind of hard to make something that's, you know, different enough that it doesn't violate their patent, but then also checks all the boxes and what the FDA needs for it to be approved. Yeah, yeah, because you need basically a little jabber, but, you know, how do you make a new jabber? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, that's like different it's, it's enough. It's so simple that you can't, like, yeah, you can't reinvent it. I, I'm going to patent pouring lemonade from a pitcher into a glass. It'd be like, yeah, <laughs> it, it's just, I mean, there's more to it. I know that, not to minimize what an EpiPen is, but it's just like, it, it, it's just ridiculous. Um, and, you know, in some ways you say, you know, you get the, you know, you get these patents and you are able to charge higher prices because you're out there creating something new that wasn't um, available for before. And yeah, something of this rapid response, you know, you would basically need a medical professional with a sy- syringe of, you know, uh, you know, epinephrine. Um, you know, if you had one of those issues, but now you can just as a regular person have it, which is the innovation and it's very valuable. So they're charging a lot of money for it. But then, you know, since it's so valuable, you run into the ethics of like, you know, what if people aren't able to buy enough EpiPens for what they really need? And then someone ends up dying because they couldn't afford to buy as many as they needed. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just one of that's that's like the whole profit in medicine thing you know it's it's tough but anyway the fda it's weird and i you know it's good that they're working to fully approve 
the vaccine. But I'm really just wondering what's going to change between now and whenever they end up approving it. Yeah. And I do think that the fact that you wonder is a problem, not on your end, on their end, right? Like there could be more transparency that would increase confidence. I think that there's been sort of in a lot of phases of this, a real failure of communication. I think that there's sort of this frustration in some circles that more people aren't taking to these scientific viewpoints. And I understand it. I I think that a lot of the arguments against it are made in bad faith. But at the same time, there's not a whole lot of positive, constructive communication coming out of the science community. A lot of people just want to say, well, it's science. You got to you got to believe science. But that's not how humans have ever worked. Humans always need appeals to, you know, their emotions and to their fears. And if you're not speaking to them on that level, no matter how correct your science is, you're not going to get popular uptake. And I think that transparency is part of that. Well, and it's also just, um, it's a weird part. Like if you follow, like if you see that there are debates happening, but aren't able to follow the through lines, like if you took, if you looked at just like the liberal, like, I don't know, not even liberal, but like, you know, all the scientists on like Twitter and stuff arguing about things, you know, where the discourse is happening or on your TV shows. It's just like, you know, there's a lot of criticism of a lot of things, but then all of a sudden, whoop, they're just okay with the vaccine. Like no criticisms there, just go along with it. I mean, I could see how somebody who's not fully watching everything could be a little bit suspect, but it, again, it's just like, how, what do we do to mitigate that? Because, well, and it's also just, like there have been times where there have been mass vaccinations and we haven't had these issues before, but it just really feels like it's been bungled. I mean, it not to least the part of, you know, Donald Trump on this, like, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about it back in the day, the duality of saying we learn, need to just learn to live with the virus. And also I am making the vaccines. They're going to be here in a couple days. But then the vaccines did show up, but then he was still like, ah, yeah, fuck you. This thing isn't too big of a deal. (laughs) I want credit for making the vaccines and I don't want criticism for buggling the vaccine response. (laughs) Like, because it wasn't a big deal. So it's just, it's, it right now, the FDA, if they moved a little bit faster on approval, that could be good, you know? And, you know, there are a whole bunch of institutions in this country and the federal government who can make requirements for people to have vaccines, but they really can't do it without the full FDA approval as a mechanism. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, there's talk of making, you know, the armed forces require the vaccine, which, should be totally fine because they require so many other vaccine vaccinations. Yeah. Like, like people out there are getting this idea that we have always had full choice on whether to vaccinate our kids or not, 
or just ourselves, you know, there are plenty of things that if you in this world that if you want to be involved in, you are required to have a minimum level of vaccination. Yeah. You know, I had to be vaccinated to go to school as a kid, you know? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Had to be vaccinated to go to college even. So, so the, you know, and if you want to be in the military, you need to be vaccinated for a whole bunch of extra things that a normal person going to, you know, public school or even college don't have to be vaccinated for. So it's just weird that there is this harumph now. I mean, I guess it makes sense that because it's new thing and not old thing, like nobody, you know, not too many people are talking about those other vaccinations. I mean, there's a small, small, small group of people who are, but like, it's just, it's just so odd. It It's all just so odd. And like, I want it to be over with. And we have the method for it to be over with, but there is resistance to it. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, as a society, we haven't made it as, as a, you know, truly available as, you know, we could. Like, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that, you know, the rich white neighborhoods of like Chicago have a like 80% vaccination rate. And then the poor black suburbs of the Chicago area have like a 25%. And, you know, in some ways that's maybe racial, but then also I'm pretty sure it's just income, you know, like mm-hmm. poor people. Well, they're so linked in this country. It's yeah, often yeah. pointless to try to separate the two. Yeah. But I mean, like if we had it, I mean, but then, you know, we've been going so far, you know, people who have already gotten the vaccine will feel bad. But, you know, we could do something where it's like, hey, we'll guarantee that if you get vaccinated, you can get the next two days off if you get, you know, the symptoms. And mm-hmm. and, you know, even if you don't have symptoms, you get those two days off and, you know, people like days off. But but then coworkers hate that other people take days off. But <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, we could just be doing more to make it more conducive to people to be able to take their, you know, get their shot. But then also, like some people have been saying that, you know, they would get it if they could get it at their doctor's office, you know, and stuff like that. We just need to, you know, in some ways we want to be the, you know, the kind of authoritarian tit for tat, like you're you're just not getting the vaccine and i'm frustrated that you're not getting the vaccine so just figure it out but we still want people to get vaccines so it, it's like we got to meet people where they're going to be you know yeah uh, yeah even, e- even if other the rest of us had were able to just get it on our own but like i said some people have there there is a scale of legitimacy on the not the the vaccine hesitancy Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's weird, man. It's weird. Life, de- man. Yeah, but the what we do know is the Delta variant is keeping on and it's spreading a lot more. So if you're unvaccinated, probably even a better time to get vaccinated than ever. No time like the yep. present. Do it. <laughs> The best time to get the vaccine was the first moment you were able to get it, but the next best time is right now. 
Yeah. It's like the tree metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. So, Evan, you got anything else to say on the subject? No, no. We, uh, I think, did it pretty thorough. And uh, next week we'll do a non-COVID topic for y'all. Whoa, crazy. (laughs) Yeah, we hope that you all found this informative. Um, Before doing research, I had been a little shaky on some of these things, so it's good to know. Um, And know what's going on and where things are headed, hopefully. So hopefully things don't get too bad, but the possibility is there and we all know it now. So, well... On that note, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. But my name's Show Hicks. Mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.